Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm David Ross and welcome to episode 6 of the Sun's new podcast, Israel's War on Terror. As Israel's operation to dismantle Hamas's terror infrastructure continues in Gaza, the sad but inevitable byproduct is a rise in anti-Semitism. Some of this is believed to be driven by modern-day blood libels, falsehoods levelled at Israel intended to demonise it. One of the notions routinely thrown around is the idea that Israel is an apartheid state, along the lines of South Africa from 1948 to the early 1990s. Earlier, I spoke with South African-born Middle East expert Samuel Hyde, who says the accusation doesn't hold water. So I think the first thing is to make some necessary distinctions, which very few people actually do, uh, between three specific groups living in the area here. So you have Israeli Arabs who live within Israel's sovereign territory. That would be the pre-1967 borders. They make up 20% of Israeli citizenry. Then you have Palestinians who live in the West Bank. They're under Israeli military occupation, and they're citizens of the Palestinian Authority. And then a third group, Palestinians residing in Hamas-controlled Gaza, from which Israel fully withdrew in 2005, both its military and the settlers, but over which Israel maintained a military blockade once Hamas came into control in 2008. So really, the failure of the charge of apartheid to capture Israeli reality it becomes especially clear when you look at the two million Arabs living within the sovereign borders of the state of Israel, who are full citizens. They have enjoyed uh, equality, as the country's Declaration of Independence promised. They're free and fair to express their political views. Their freedom of movement is unrestricted. There's no segregation policies. They vote in national and local elections. They're fully represented in the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament. In fact, um, there was an Islamist Arab uh, party, Ra'am, United Arab List, uh, was part of the previous governing coalition, and its leader, Mansour Abbas, actually sat as the Speaker of the Parliament. Now, if you look at South Africa, in South Africa, through the Population Registration Act, their marriages were banned between whites and people of other races. There was prohibition on sexual relations between black and white South, African, uh, South Africans. There were travel restrictions, curfews, preventions of which areas black people could live separate benches, separate beaches, no voting or civil rights, no political representation, an entirely separate education system, which is called Bantu education, that was essentially designed to train black South Africans to be cleaners in someone's house and, and gardeners. Um, now, we have to make that distinction uh, because there's someone else, in fact, who makes that distinction, uh, which is Amnesty International, who, uh, despite releasing a scathing 280-page report uh, with the title Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians, a cruel system of domination and crimes against humanity. I'm going to quote them here because they accused Israel of being an apartheid state within all its borders. 
so tucked away in this report in an unhighlighted passage, which should actually tell um, the listeners everything about the authors who wrote it. They say, this report does not seek to argue any system of oppression and domination as perpetrated in Israel or the occupied territories that is the same or analogs the system of segregation, oppression, and domination as perpetrated in South Africa. So in other words, what we're talking about here is not actually apartheid. When you look at the second group, okay, which is uh, the occupied Palestinian territories, Israel conquered the West Bank in 1967 as a result of the Six-Day War, which was previously under Jordanian occupation between 1948 to 1967. Um, this was obviously in a defensive war waged by the three Arab armies, Syria, Egypt, and Jordan. Since then, we know obviously roughly 500,000 Israeli settlers have moved into the territory, and the military government imposed on the West Bank does, in all fairness, control almost every aspect of the Palestinian inhabitants' lives. Uh, there's travel restrictions, which do create uh, suppression of freedom and movement. This is all true. Permits are required to travel to Israel or abroad. This is all true. But really, it's not about race. The system here is defined as a military occupation according to both the Hague Convention and the Fourth Geneva Convention. And look, as ugly as it is, it is uh, necessary to prevent terrorism. And the reason why I want to give an example uh, and then I'll end this part of it, is let's flip to the opposite scenario in which Israel completely withdraws its military from the West Bank as it did from Gaza, the Gaza Strip in 2005. Uh, within a short time, Hamas took over the Gaza Strip and began raining down rockets on Israel's nearby cities and, and eventually towards Tel Aviv, and as we know now, leading up to the October 7th massacres. So if Hamas could gain control of the West Bank in the same way in which it did in Gaza, allowing it to bombard Israel's population centers and launch missiles and assaults like its recent massacre, to which they themselves have committed to doing again and again and again until Israel is obliterated, according to their spokesperson. Hamas rule, which is a proxy of Iran, would allow Iran to install forces and weaponry in the West Bank, as it's already done in Lebanon with Hezbollah or in Yemen with the Houthis. Um, and the final thing I'd really say on this is this complicated patchwork of self-rule and shared control in the West Bank, which is divided into three areas, areas A, B, and C. Area A is fully governed and controlled, even in a security manner, by the Palestinian Authority. Area B is shared control with Israel. Civilian control is in the Palestinian Authority. Security control is in Israeli control. Area C is fully in Israeli control, both civilian-wise and militarily. But this is the result of the Oslo II agreement that was signed by both the Israelis and the Palestinians in 1995. And the only like major legal change since then was the 2005 disengagement of Israeli soldiers and settlers from the Gaza Strip. There's actually been no legal change since that point, which in my, my assumption means that all these recent allegations are sparked not by an actual legal event, but rather by malignant fantasies. So what is then the aim of those that make this charge against Israel? What are they trying to do? Okay, well, if you look at, look, here's the thing. There was never any need for hundreds of pages of different reports to try and make the case that South Africa was an apartheid state. From the time of its implementation in 1948, apartheid was proudly acknowledged and uh, promoted by the South African government. It was clear to all citizens, both black and white, those for it and those against it, what system they were living in. Um, it didn't require a debate. Uh, essentially, the system needed to be overthrown because it was evil, both in principle and in practice. So what I see here is by drawing parallels between South Africa and Israel, 
all these groups are essentially arguing that the Jewish state's very existence is a, ra a racist undertaking established on the basis of oppressing Palestinians. And just like in the case of South the South African regime, no peace can actually be achieved until Israel vanishes by submission or signs and unconditional surrender. And I want to give context to why that is, again, uh, the point. Because we just spoke about the Oslo Accords, but the Oslo Accords were an interim agreement seeking a final status agreement which would have seen the birth of an independent sovereign Palestinian state next to Israel. This is precisely what was on the table, as recently uh, said by Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Dennis Ross, the chief negotiator. The documentation of all of this is very clear, and it's been very clear since the 2000s. So the peace accord at Camp David in 2000, and later again at Camp David II in 2008, would have birthed a sovereign independent Palestinian state thereby ending the very military occupation in which we're speaking about. There would have been no settlements within the sovereign state of Palestine and a capital in East Jerusalem. Arafat in 2000 and later Abbas walked away from this deal. And it's precisely at the time that Arafat and Abbas are walking away from this deal that the 2001 Durban conference in South Africa, was, which was supposed to be against racism, but yes, yet Nazi insignia was handed out at this, uh, this UN summit, essentially, Basically, what I'm saying is that the precise time that the occupation could have come to an end, but the Palestinians rejected two states, it just so happened that a, a, a word became popularized, which would not require any debate or peace accord, but the total overthrowing of the Jewish state. And so if we look at this intellectual anti-Semitism, which is essentially what you're saying, is it causal when it comes down to what is happening in terms of these terror atrocities? Is it partly to blame? This demonization is partly to blame for the actions. I would say that demonization is partly to bl blame for the actions in which we're seeing in the streets across the globe. I think in some capacity, uh, there's quite a clear through line. For example, Hajamin al-Husseini, which was the Palestinian leader in the 1930s and 1940s. This is all pre the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, it's around about the time of the Peel Commission, before any idea of partition, well, it's before any significant offer of partition of the land between two states come about, was a collaborator with Hitler. This is very clearly doc documented as well and released by the German government themselves. So when you look at Hamas, for example, uh, they they call for the total eradication not only of Israel, but the total genocide of Jewish people. What is very misunderstood about Hamas, and I've seen this recently on a lot of uh, British uh, television, is the word terrorism uh, still doesn't suffice because there are many terrorist movements in the past that were political groups. And therefore, no matter how radical they were, you could satisfy their interests and their needs. But Hamas actually hates nationalism in the way in which we understand it via the self-determination of a group of people in an independent nation state. Hamas is a religious movement, and they're dedicated to seeing the world divided into two, Dar al-Islam and Dal al-Ahab. Dal al-Ahab is like Israel. Uh, it's, an, it's the world of infidels, and essentially, that is where this comparison between Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS in particular is coming in. So I'd say that this long route of anti-Semitism, as well as one, what one must understand is that Zionism as a liberation movement 
seek to relegate Jews essentially from the second class of global citizenry, a position that they'd constantly be subdued to for two millennia, including in the Middle East and the Arab world. There's some fantasies of people who say that there was peace uh, between the Arabs and the Jews in this land. Uh, I, I'm not sure how they could say that. There was things called Dimi laws, which relegated Jews to the second class of citizenry. There was the 1929 massacre of Jews in Hebron. I can keep listing them on and on and on. The actual Hamas attack uh, is promoted by an ancient hatred uh, of a group of people uh, and uh, Islamist fundamentalist ideology. So when the organizations like Amnesty International and various affiliates of the UN make these claims against Israel, how difficult is it to counter them? Because the average person on the street will just see, oh, established body must be right. How is that narrative countered? Well, I mean, it is. It's it's very difficult uh, because these, these uh, organizations have for many decades, established themselves with legitimacy, correct? But let's look at the United Nations, for example. The United Nations has 15 resolutions on Israel, more than any other country combined in one year. It's got a permanent resolution on Israel, nothing on China, nothing on Venezuela. China who have one and a half million Uyghur Muslims in re-education or concentration camps, if you want to refer to it. Um, there's definitely a bias there. Uh, and the bias comes in particularly when, firstly, as I said in the Amnesty International report, they themselves admit that this is not a system reminiscent of apartheid South Africa. Now, they're admitting that themselves, but still in their title calling it that, then one must understand that there's political motivations behind this. And the political motivations become even clearer when essentially they speak about what their, um, what their suggestion is to solve this issue. Um, so the Amnesty Report, for example, makes a series of recommendations to improve a lot of Palestinian Arabs' lives, both in Israel and in the occupied territories. I've no problem with that. I think that everyone's life should be equal. I think that the Palestinians should, there should be a two-state solution. I don't believe in the settlement project. I don't think that the, I think that there's ways actually to, to solve the settlement movement, and maybe we can speak about that afterwards. I don't think that current reality is sustainable, not for the Palestinians, and I find it self-destructive for Israelis. But the most far-reaching of uh, these proposals which they made would be to allow mass return of Palestinian refugees. There are now some 600 million. I mean, six, sorry, six million, according to the UN tolls, to return into sovereign Israel, into the borders of the state of Israel. Now, you've already got two to two and a half million Arab Israelis and six million Palestinians. That means within the Jewish state, the Jews would be a minority. Now, that's very clear and that's very important because I showed the link between this claim of apartheid and the peace deals when Arafat walked away. And the reason Arafat actually walked away and Abbas was because they insisted that the right of return, which is neither a right nor actually a return, was an inalienable right for all Palestinians. So you're living in a situation in which 750,000 refugees are now 6 million refugees, at which 5 million of them, if you want to say 4.5 million of them, live in the West Bank. Let's look at Gaza. There's 2 to 2.5 million Palestinians in Gaza, 
who are considered refugees, Palestinian refugees of Palestine, claiming to return to Palestine. Now, by anyone's stretch of the imagination, whether it's on the side of the Palestinians, the Israelis, or the international community, Gaza is Palestine. Yet they're still refugees, even though they've been settled in Palestine, of Palestine looking to return into Palestine. I say which Palestine, and we know it's from the river to the sea. So I think the Amnesty International report, for example, made themselves very clear when they basically instructed the same uh, goal of people like Arafat and Abbas about the right of return, which would turn the Jews into a minority in their own state. This is also the same inter Amnesty International who released a, a report virtually blaming Ukraine for Russia's invasion. So I think they've lost a lot of legitimacy as it stands outside of Israel, but people are less willing to let that legitimacy fall when it comes to Israel. But I did notice a lot of people quite baffled by that Ukrainian report. And I think that that might have an effect. And these blood libels, modern day blood libels, are what's being talked about by some on college campuses, particularly around the US, but also in the UK. How much of an impact has that had? And how can Israel tackle this misinformation spread? Well, on the first thing, when you look at this, this goes back to, you could say, the UN resolution to declare Zionism as racism, which was later uh, reverted because it was propaganda on behalf of the Soviets and the Arab world. The Soviets actually industrialized anti-Zionism, uh, which, which resulted in mass imprisonment and, and the eventual uh, expulsion of Jews from the Soviet Union who found refuge here in Israel. Uh, but that's a different story. But when you can equate, for example, Zionism with racism, Israel with apartheid, Israel with genocide, Israel with ethnic cleansing, all these different terminology, then what you're essentially doing is equating the state of Israel and its people with an er inherent evil. And something that is inherently evil needs to be overthrown. And at the point when you have said that something is inherently evil, it's very easy to de dehumanize the people which exist in that country. Israel is always going to face some sort of attack from certain countries. The reality is there's one Jewish state among 23 Arab states. Now, luckily, the region is changing, as we saw with the result of the Abraham Accords, and earlier with the, which is cold peace with Egypt and Jordan, uh, and the possibility of the Saudi peace deal, which I think is still possible, despite everything that's going on. So the region is changing. But for decades, for decades, basically, and still today, the United Nations works on a you vote for me, I vote for you system. So every single UN ambassador is given a mandate at which they have to pass certain resolutions on behalf of their country. This is very interesting because now let's say African countries, any African country, any Latin American country, some European countries need to pass their mandate and it doesn't have support among some people in the world. Are they going to approach the Jewish state? for the Jewish state to vote and then do a you vote for me, I vote for you? Or are they going to go to the Arab states and get 23 Arab votes for their um, resolution, which would pass it, and then in agreement, essentially choose to vote in favor of all the, the resolutions which the Arabs are putting on the table? So that, that's a very important point because there's a lot of corruption within the United Nations, which can now be seen, for example, with Iran of all people sitting on the Human Rights Council, Russia sitting on the Human Rights Council, Iran sitting on the Women's Council. So really, the United Nations has lost, in my opinion, far too much legitimacy for the body in which it's supposed to be and supposed to represent. When it comes to Israel, 
and how to tackle this. The only thing that we can do is what we're doing right now is we can talk about it and we can unpack it. Unfortunately, there does there um, does tend to exist within certain societies a 2,000-year-old uh, hatred that is based on the premise of the Jewish people being inherently evil. This keeps showing up every two to three decades, two millennia. So it's very easy to turn around and have the idea, oh, well, it must have been the Jews. Look at what happened with the hospital, for example. There was absolutely no evidence. It took these media outlets a week to corroborate the numbers of the, the Hamas massacre on Israel. It took them exactly an hour to release a report given to them by Hamas that 500 Palestinians had been killed in a hospital bombing by the Israeli airstrikes. We subsequently know today that, firstly, it was not the hospital that was hit, but a parking lot next to the hospital. We know that it was a failed Islamic Jihad rocket. This has been not only shown by Israeli intelligence, but also approved by the American uh, intelligence in an independent um, report as well. Uh, but the minute that it was proven that it was came from within Gaza, all of a sudden that number of 500 drastically dropped down to something between 30 to 50. So I think it's very easy and very, um, even if these things remain subconscious or unconscious, I think it's very easy after an entire societal structure for 2000 years has been ingrained with this kind of idea that uh, in times of chaos, it's quite comforting to say it was the Jews. And when the UN can't even pass a vote that says the Hamas massacre on October the 7th was terrorism unequivocally, then, you know, you've got a problem. Exactly. I mean, that speaks to your, that speaks to your, your previous question. And uh, it speaks to, to a recent interview I just watched with um, Pierce Morgan and Jeremy Corbyn. Who Corbyn tried to wiggle his way out of it by saying, "Oh, I just said, uh, where's our friend from Hamas gone in a private meeting?" But that's not true. There's actually recorded footage of him twice calling Hamas his friends, and today is still refusing uh, to prescribe Hamas a terrorist organization, which, as I understand, the UK government itself has, and at the same time refusing uh, to state whether he believes Hamas should still control Gaza. I think that was very telling. So where do we go from here, assuming that the IDF manages to wipe out Hamas terror infrastructure? What is the best next step if if peace really is on the table? Well, look, you've got some people who are saying that the Palestinian Authority should be uh, reinstalled. The problem with that is that even among the Palestinians themselves, and you ask pretty much any Palestinian living in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority are seen as weak, increasingly illegitimate, and corrupt. So that leaves room to happen exactly what happened in 2005 when the Palestinian Authority were overthrown by a group like Hamas. I think it would be a terribly self-destructive idea for Israel to implement a military occupation on Gaza the same way in which it has in the West Bank and maintain that as a status quo. It will be a total self-destructive disaster to allow any uh, settlements to rebuild. But I don't think those three um, things which I've just spoken about are realistic or are necessarily going to happen in that capacity. What we do know at the end of the day is that the region is changing. It might be unrealistic because the Arab states have also at the same time refused to take in Palestinian refugees. But there's many ways to look at that. I think that the Saudi deal would be a game changer in many ways, because essentially one of the Hamas goals was to assassinate that peace deal. I think that 
there's multiple ways to look at this. I'm not exactly sure what system could come about. I can give points in which I think need to be addressed. Um, essentially, this is a systemic issue within Palestinian society. When Arafat and Abbas walked away from the peace deal, now we understand that the Palestinian Authority is not a democracy, but Palestinians do regularly protest against their government when it comes to e economic corruption measures, the banking system, et cetera, et cetera. We saw ma massive protests last year. There wasn't one protest when Arafat and Abbas, not even a five people holding a sign saying, return to the negotiating table and secure our state, end this occupation, remove the settlements, capital in East Jerusalem, nothing of the kind. So this idea of uh, a Palestinian state from the uh, river to the sea is still held predominantly within Palestinian society. That's not to say that they agree with the means of the way in which Hamas wants to achieve it. I can safely say majority don't. But when you look at the education system, both of the Palestinian Authority and what's been going on with UNRWA, they clearly incite to violence, jihad and martyrdom, and continually perpetuate anti-Semitism. So you've got something that needs an entire societal structural change on the one hand, in order to bring a new generation with a constructive vision rather than a destructive vision of from the river to the sea. Then you've got the issue which Israel will now face, once it, there's inquiries looking into where the security breach was, I think the question that cannot be evaded is the fact that because the settlements keep extending into the West Bank, it's essentially lengthened Israel's lines of defense. So when you look at the deployment of forces, 75% of Israel's overall military troops are deployed to the West Bank, leaving 25% to be spread across roughly five to six other border fronts. That is totally unsustainable. So the only reason why that is the case is because 80% of that 75% that are in the West Bank are guarding settlements and settlers wherever they're moving and wherever they are living. So Israel's going to need to somehow draw its final border even within the West Bank to improve its deployment of forces, which will actually improve its security, which is vital in this time because our security has been shook. The Saudi deal will... If it goes through, which I think they're still open to by the by the sense of what they've stated, was in initially already going to come with concessions of that nature with the, with the Palestinians. Um, what what was posited was that there'd be a new security reality, and Israel drawing its final borders. This is not impossible, as I know some progressive um, uh, Westerners like to posit uh, why the two state solution is being killed. 85% of the settlers live in 4% of the West Bank. Uh, Israel can essentially draw its border around that 4%. Uh, it can either evacuate the other the other remaining 15% that don't live in, in that uh, area, um, or essentially it can give them the choice to remain, uh, and then no evacuation is necessary. Something will need to change here drastically. What existed on October 6th, no longer exists on October 7th. Exactly where we're going, I, I, I can't in good conscience actually say what that will be because we have heard very little about a day after strategy besides for tricklings out coming from Netanyahu, which I am not alarmed about despite me being very against the current government and being very against Netanyahu himself uh, because I don't think Netanyahu or his uh, radical coalition of the far right stand any chance in actually serving in government afterwards. So it's going to require new leadership. It's a long way away, and it's definitely going to require some sort of collaboration with the region. Exactly what that looks like and exactly how we get there, I'm not... 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quite sure yet. South African-born Middle East expert Samuel Hyde there, as the horrors of Hamas's October 7 massacre continue to haunt Israeli society, one group are emerging as unsung heroes. After a terror attack in Israel, it is the job of the Zaka organization to collect the entire remains of the dead, including all the blood, so the victims can have a proper burial in accordance with Jewish law. Josh Wanda is the team's spokesperson, and was working at the massacre sites the day after the attacks. On that day, which was a Jewish festival on October 7th, uh, I was home in my home in Jerusalem, and uh, we were celebrating as, as we normally would with the family and the community here. Uh, I actually was woken up quite early, although we don't uh, use technology on the Sabbath and on our holidays as Orthodox Jews, uh, we had a phone, uh, we have an emergency phone that's set aside uh, that gets alerts uh, when there are rockets that are being shot to anywhere in the country. Uh, the alerts started coming in from the south uh, that uh, fateful morning, uh, and they started, they, there was clearly a barrages of, of rockets that are coming through, much more than uh, we have experienced in the past. Um, within minutes, the, the messages uh, started changing from just rockets to that it became clear that this is a much greater uh, a greater event than what we uh, we originally thought it was, and it was at that point that I was uh, I was notified, or soon afterwards I was notified that I'm going to be deployed uh, to the south. Where did you go first, and what did you see? Uh, the first place that I went uh, was to the city of Beiri. It was actually the following day. Um, I went to the city of Beiri. Um, as we were entering the south, uh, we were driving down through the roads. The roads were still covered in bodies. Uh, there were cars that were burnt on the sides of the roads, uh, with uh, riddled with bullets with bodies inside of them. Um, so the, the whole way to the south, uh, in the south, was already walking into what I described as, as a horror movie. It, it was just something that was completely surreal, even to veteran seasoned volunteers like myself, who have seen quite a lot in the past. So when you eventually went from residence to residence, just describe the level of atrocity that you were having to deal with. with without going into too much detail, because uh, I don't think that's necessary, and there are plenty of uh, videos out there already, I should say that I did not think it was necessary until about uh, half an hour ago. Uh, I've been pretty disconnected to uh, social media, uh, but about a half an hour ago before this interview, I just happened to turn on YouTube or something. I don't know, I don't even know what I was watching. And I saw one of the rallies that was uh, pro, pro Hamas rallies. I think it was in Chicago or somewhere in the United States and 
how people were being interviewed there, and they were claiming that this was all a myth, this was all fabricated by the Israelis. Uh, I was completely shocked. I, I think, David, back to the Holocaust that happened, you know, 70, 80 years ago, and I can understand with the lack of uh, social media, what we don't have today, why, how could there could be, and the fact that there are very few uh, survivors still around, how it could be that there are people that are, that are denying uh, that the Holocaust happened. But we're talking about something, an event that happened a month, a month and a half, less than a month and a half ago. And with all the social media and all the videos out there, there are still people that are walking the streets believing that this is a fabrication, which is was so shocking to me. So to your question, we went house to house and uh, and every house was, I, I could almost say, was worse than the one before it. Um, we're talking about entire families um, murdered, houses that were completely burnt down when the terrorists were not able to to get into the, the families. They just burnt the, the houses to the ground. So we're talking about bodies that were completely burnt, uh, men, women, children. On many occasions, I should also mention that we saw other other nationalities. It wasn't uh, not not on very, but next to there, there was another kibbutz called Alumin, in which we uh, we found over 30 bodies of uh, Thai workers from Thailand that were working in the fields that they were all murdered. The, the murder was clearly indiscriminate, and uh, it, they, they didn't care whether it was a Jew, a Muslim, a foreign worker, an Israeli. Uh, they were basically killing everybody, and I, I should say even, say even the animals. We went into play farms where they had they just mowed down all of the cows, for example. Um, they were basically, it, it was just a kill zone where, where they were out to kill everything alive that they found, except obviously the hostages that they took. That's what we initially saw. And how does your team cope with such a horrific reality in front of their eyes? What goes through their mind as they're working? Because the work that they're doing, as I understand it, they have to recover all of the remains. So let me just tell you what I did, because I was only in the Kibbutzim uh, initially for a couple of days before I was called up to the IDF uh, on an emergency call-up. And at that point, I was sent uh, to coordinate a center in the in an army base here in the center of the country, uh, which basically all of the bodies came to. And the goal was to identify the bodies in that center. Uh, so we, we had thousands of bodies that were recovered, um, again, both Jewish, um, foreign workers, terrorists, they all the bodies came to us and we were tasked with the uh, uh, identification of the, of these bodies. Different people deal, dealt with it differently. Uh, I could say that there were many people, for example, in that center that I was coordinating, uh, the bodies were already in, in body bags and each one was given a unique number uh, to it. So many people that worked there, David, they, they didn't want to know the names of the people that they were dealing with. They just wanted to know the numbers because they were, number one, they didn't want to connect to that person. And number two, they were afraid that perhaps uh, they would recognize one of the names and they would uh, just not be able to continue working. I, on the other hand, had a different approach. Uh, again, everybody was unique. Uh, when I think of Jews being murdered and, and, and being numbers, I, I think back to the Holocaust as we were just numbers then. And for me, it was very important to, to give a name, to hear the name of every single person that I, that I worked with there. So again, everybody had their own uh, unique uh, ways of dealing with it. The Israel is one of the uh, leaders in the world for psychotrauma. Um, and we had a constant flow of psychologists, army psychologists coming through and speaking to all the workers uh, on a daily basis. But just to tell you how how terrible it was, David, there were actually psychologists 
that were tasked to speak to the psychologists because what they were hearing from us about, about the victims was so traumatic that they actually needed therapy themselves. The therapists needed therapists. You mentioned there that the terrorists' bodies who'd been killed were brought in uh, alongside the victims of the massacre. How did that make you feel? So in the kibbutzim itself, we tried uh, as best as we could to identify who were the victims and who were the terrorists. That's not always so clear-cut, either because the body was mutilated. Just give you an example. We we found the body that had uh, the magazine of a Kalachnikov, an AK-47, which is the weapon that the terrorists used in his pocket. But that wasn't enough for us to identify the body because it could be that this was a someone that was living in the kibbutz and was just trying to defend themselves and picked up a, a gun and picked up a magazine off the ground. There's no way of knowing from just that uh, whether who, who what this body was. On the other hand, uh, we had other clear signs. Uh, for example, there were some that had a... Uh, a ribbon over their over their forehead of Kamas. Some of them had watches um, that they they did not change their time zone. They have a, a time zone which was an hour before ours, uh, so they had the Gaza time on their watches. Even that wasn't a hundred percent proof, but that gave us more of an idea of who who was who. The actual identification of them involved more technology. So generally, uh, everyone in Israel, or I would say most people in Israel go through a process of fingerprinting. There's a mandatory draft here to the IDF, to the army. Uh, so anyone who's 18 years old goes through a process in which they are fingerprinted during that process. DNA is also taken and there are t- pictures of their of their teeth. Anyone in Israel that has a either a biometric passport or identity card has gone through fingerprinting. And of course, someone who's been arrested in the past has been fingerprinted. So this is all part of, of these huge databases that the uh, government and the IDF hold. There was actually a special law that was uh, that was an emergency law that was made uh, just for this event in order to identify the body that allowed access for the government into the uh, army database, which is usually sealed and not accessible to, to the government. So the first thing we did is we we fingerprinted anyone that we could, uh, and that was the fastest way to identify them. Uh, unfortunately, there were people that were not yet of the age of draft age, 18, or of the age of getting a, a an identity card. They were less than 16, or perhaps their bodies were so mutilated or burnt that uh, we weren't able to get fingerprinting from them. Uh, in those cases, we went to more, we used other technologies, including having a, a group of dentists looking at the teeth uh, and or the uh, DNA samples that were taken from the bodies. Uh, and if those DNA sa- samples, if we had something to compare it to, so we had local people here in Israel that uh, family members that we can compare it to, then the process was is generally pretty fast. Uh, on the other hand, when uh, we don't have what to compare it to because the, they don't have family members or the terrorists, for example, uh, we don't have any family, any any records to compare it to. That process of DNA uh, uh, checking by the forensics department takes a lot longer. That's a lot to uh, uh, to take in for for anybody. Your organization is volunteers, is that right? So we have about a dozen salaried workers, and we have a few thousand volunteers. Uh, most people that are working for the organization are volunteers, and it really needs to be that way. Uh, you can't pay somebody to do this work. This is something that someone has to want to do that feels uh, uh, an obligation to do. Uh, just to 
make it clear, David, for those that are not aware, according to Jewish law, the, our tradition is that the a person after they're deceased, their soul still hovers over that body. They're still around very much with us until they are buried, until they go on to the next world. And even then, we believe in a resurrection. So the process of, of a respectful um, burial is very important to us, both to the deceased as well as to the living, to their families. Uh, if we believe in burying as quickly as possible, uh, and especially in cases like this, um, it's necessary to close that circle for families that are waiting, that don't know if their uh, family members, their loved ones have been taken hostage, if they're missing. Uh, it was very important to us to try to streamline as much as we could the whole process. And what contact have you had, if any, with any families or, or relatives of those who were massacred? So I've been working almost nonstop for the past month and a half, so I, I've had very little contact um, with them. Uh, but there are those that, that do make contact. Uh, I, I just There's a story that I just heard actually today in our offices where, where there was another group that was going out to recover bodies from the Kibbutzim, at, at the time, in the first uh, day, uh, there were still terrorists that were roaming around, and uh, we were guarded constantly by the IDF as we were doing the recovery of the bodies. And often we were called out of the kibbutz because of the because there were ongoing uh, firefights. There was actually a soldier that was guarding uh, that group, and uh, the soldier got into a firefight with with a terrorist and was killed. And that group wound up having to also recover the body of the soldier that was guarding that. Josh Wander from the Zaka organization. That brings an end to this week's installment of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more episodes wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.